to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. And joining us this week is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. Yeah. Uh-huh. Also with us, the director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. Uh-huh. Yeah. With us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. Whatever you say, Matt. You can feel the enthusiasm, folks. <laughs> it's been a long, long Week slash year slash yeah. four years. So, you know, we're all doing the best we can. We have a great show for you this week. We have uh, some awesome questions. We will kick off with a say that thank you to uh, awesome Superman fan Michelle from the Pacific Northwest who sent us a lovely card that we uh, we read once we made sure that there was chocolate in the package as wow. well. And then we went ahead yeah. and read the card, which said many lovely things which it would have been a shame if we had to throw that out, which, of course, is what we do to all packages that come with no foodstuffs. But Michelle Correct. made I, with the wonderful encouragement and the goodies, and we, that's what we like to see. I will say, if you're friends with Glenn on Facebook, then you, you saw this, and, and it's yeah. true. We have the greatest podcast fans on the planet Earth. Correct. Probably any other planet, too. I don't imagine any other planets have podcast fans better than our fans. No, but Elon Musk has started a lot, has raised a lot of money to launch that Mars podcast network. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I will say this. My, my wife did alert me to the Facebook post and said, what are the chances you get any of this chocolate? And I said, that's a 0% chance. That's not happening. That all of that chocolate is staying in Chicago. And any podcast fan that sends baked goods or chocolate, you're going to have to actually mail it to me because... It gets consumed as soon as the post has been uh, as soon as as soon as the post has been has been put up on the Facebook. Well, it's just you know in the in, the, in these uncertain times, it's just not sh- safe to ship something twice. We're just looking out for you, Lee. Really, that's a good thing. Yeah, we, what we do is we divide it up uh, equitably, and then um, you know eat our share. And then, uh, you know, we get to it when we get to it, and uh, besides and so forth. That is fair enough. And uh, from a very rare moment of sincerity at the top of the show, we move into what can only be an emergency. What? That's an emergency. emergency. So anything in the news this week, fellas? No, I can't think of it. Topical. Seems like a light anything. news week. Nothing springs yeah, to nothing, mind. No, definitely. I not. smashed my television many, many weeks ago, <laughs> so I'm not really up on things. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't refreshed browsers a thousand times at all this week. Lee's home. Lee's homepage is still GeoCities. That's how long it's been since he refreshed <laughs> his browser. Alta Vista, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, here. But here's one of the things I have picked up, and what's going on in the air is uh, we. we Counting is big. We're talking about counting. Mm-hmm. We're going to Sesame Street. We're talking about counting and recounting and challenging the count. And apparently, if there was something that happened and you don't like it, you can just say, well, but all those numbers that I don't like aren't real. I have my own numbers. Mm. Mm. And this seems like exactly the kind of nonsense we can use to our advantage. Yes. Yeah. For example, yeah. I'm going to go ahead and claim we're the most popular podcast in the world. Now, There's oh, no question Spotify iTunes, Google, they would tell you that, you know, your, your Mark Marins and your Ira Glasses and your Joe Rogans get, get millions of downloads every, every week. And we, 
do a, a very small factor of that. But here's what I'm saying. Maybe there's 5 million people a week who download this show, and we just haven't counted their downloads yet. There you go. There yeah. you go. Maybe I we need to have it. a press conference outside the uh, the Hilton. And by that, I mean uh, Hilton Plumbing <laughs> here in Lamers <laughs> Forest Park, Illinois. Mm, and accuse yeah. uh, Joe Rogan of counting a lot of uh, podcast downloads that just didn't happen. Yeah. Were yeah. we allowed in the room when Apple tabulated those? I don't think we were. Really good question. <laughs> Let me tell you what, we're we're not conceding defeat on any of that. Absolutely not. In the year of our Lord, uh, 2002, I, I lost out on the, the starting right guard position in the Oakland High School football team to no less than three other people. But here's the thing. I'm not giving it up yet. I think it still might happen, and uh, uh-huh. I'm not ready to concede defeat on that. I think it's good. Uh, you got to stand stand your ground, man. I mean, you're still wearing the pads, so you, well, you should. safety. You never know what's going to happen <laughs> this year. That's right. Here's what I'm saying is, look, a lot of people are saying that The Liturgists is a really popular Christian podcast, but when I talk to our people, our people say the Say That podcast is way more popular than The Liturgists. Everybody that I know is listening to Say That more than The Liturgists, so I don't understand why everybody's saying The Liturgists is more popular than our podcast. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't actually know anybody that listens to that show, only this show. Well, you see, well, that's that's a sample size is what that is. Math, you're welcome. Do we have, like, a documented evidence that they get uh, lovely treats and snacks in the mail? Like zero of that. Also, do they have regular fans or do they have super fans? Mm. Because uh, if you don't have any super fans... Then how can you have the best podcast in the world? How wow. popular could you be? It feels like we probably do need to get a presser together and go out and talk to the people about right. that. Uh, but I, I feel like we need to hold it somewhere pretty fancy, though. Um, uh-huh. you know, so, you know, a place that uh, that really you know signifies you know how classy all of us are, but the importance of of the matters at hand. Any any ideas on like where we could have our press conference? Mm. I don't know something in a nice part of town. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe like a like a, a fine hotel brand that people are familiar with. You know, something where they'd be like people would hear it and they'd be like, yeah, that's that's fancy. That's that's good. Well, yeah, I think you know, like uh, sometimes uh, next to like a graveyard, they have like really nice reception <laughs> areas. <laughs> you could do that, you know. <laughs> yeah that'll work well gentlemen you know it feels like we're having a lot of a lot of healing conversations here and really getting you know a lot of things Mm. off our chest and so i'd I'd like to join in on that and and talk about something where there was clear fraudulent behavior um and it needs to be put to right when i was in fifth grade i was in the meadow park elementary school spelling bee this is a true fact oh and um in the semi-final round um, fraudulently, they ejected me from the contest because they claimed I misspelled the word chapel. Now, mm. uh, you can imagine that this was a, a bit of a stink and that I am a preacher's kid. And of course, I know how to spell the word chapel. Um, and obviously it was, you know, um, the work of the lamestream fake news media. But mm. the key thing is new evidence has come to light since then. It turns out that 
Chapel, the way that I spelled it as a 10-year-old in fifth grade, is also the name of a rare gastrointestinal disorder. So Mm. I was right. Like, I didn't even know how right I was, but more importantly, neither did they. So I, I want to be clear. I am not conceding my fifth grade spelling bee. I am demanding that we reinstate it immediately so that I can go back to now the final round and crush my opponents and take home the prize of hopefully first place in the Meadow Park Elementary School spelling bee. It sounds to me, Jed, like not only did you not lose the spelling bee, but you won it by a lot. I won it by a lot. I don't think anyone has ever won a spelling bee by more than what I won it by. Wow. Yeah, I, I spelled the most words. And that's with the uh, Meadow Park Elementary School deep state trying to foil you at every turn. This is exactly what I'm saying. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to say that I'm a hero, but I'm a hero. Wow. It's the modesty that people connect to the most. Yeah. Really, in <laughs> yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, this is, like, this is like having a superpower. Like when someone says, well, this is the way numbers work and you don't get what you want. You'd be like, yeah, but what if the numbers were different? Then I'd have what I want. So give it to me. i'm I'm just gonna try it listen i i didn't realize until this week that math was subjective yeah uh and that's a that opens up a lot of doors for me because in a lot of ways math has been kicking my behind all these years sure you know like you know i go to the doctor and he says how old are you i'm like eh you know round about this much you know and he wants to know the real numbers, and I tell him, and he sort of pulls that face. I'm like, ooh, ah, I don't know. Okay, well, you know, that limits our options, you know, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> uh, it's it's good to know that, like, if in my mind I'm younger, I can just say that I am, and then it sort of becomes true. Then moving forward, you're 32. By a lot, by the way. Yeah, by well, a lot. Thirty-two by a lot. <laughs> I'm thirty-two by a whole lot. Well, the beautiful thing is, our, our you just got to get your friends at the uh, One Glenn News Network to just run yeah. some stories about how uh, you know there's a lot of questions being about asked about whether or not Glenn might actually be thirty-two. A lot of people are saying Glenn might be thirty-two. Your thoughts? I I I've been approached by different people in the medical community to to just to comment on Glenn's actual age and my fierce loyalty to him uh forces me to say that of course he's 32 I don't know what you mean how could he be anything other than 32 and the fact that you would even suggest that he's anything other than 32 shows that you've been completely duped by the the uh the fake math media yeah, sheeple. The the good news is now I know why everybody's been feverishly trying to get a hold of my birth certificate. <laughs> yeah, that's but I, right. I think it's it, it and and that number, um, y- you know, the 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 date of birth. It, it it it's far back enough to where it's pretty tough to do the math in your head, and you got to count, you know. But I'm saying stop to count. It's yeah. it's fine. I'm I'm 32, and that you know it's it feels true. So let's say it is. Well, a lot of these numbers are hard to nail down. And you know, I I hear reports that a uh, Deutsche Deutsche Bank lent Glenn several thousand days 
Yeah, <laughs> but they don't. They're yeah, they don't because you know it's tax havens. They don't have to release those records, so we just kind of have to go with what he says. Well, Glenn's if, age is if, being audited. He's been very clear about this. Glenn's <laughs> age is being audited. He would love to discuss it further, but he can't until the audit is complete. Why don't you people get this? What's going to happen when Deutsche Bank wants all of these hundreds of thousands of days back? Look, there's been a lot of talk about dark birthdays. Now, <laughs> I don't know where that comes from. It comes from all my birthdays between ages 8 and 14. <laughs> well played. Well played. Yeah, we. I don't think we should concede defeat, fellas. You know, we. Uh, you know, we've been uh, uh, underdogs in this podcasting game. Right. You know, well, other people got fancy uh, what have yous, and then hats? you know here you they got hats? all that. Yeah, podcasting hats. See, we can't compete with that. Yeah, we can't compete with that. I, I think this has been a very productive emergency. Glenn is thirty-two. I won the fifth grade spelling bee. Uh, Matt uh, probably went, you know, uh, pro football. And Lee is one of the hosts of the most popular podcast on the internet. So Absolutely right. everything's <laughs> coming up us, y'all. Absolutely right. Now we're going to move on to our first question, but that doesn't mean that we concede that this emergency is off. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yes. We have some, it. some legal action pending and we'll see just we'll when this see. whole thing ends. But we will, of course, move to tell you about Bridgebox. You can, of course, sign up for that at missionusa.com slash Bridgebox, like many of you wonderful, wonderful people have done here in the month of November. We're looking at giving thanks. We're looking at how to give thanks when things continue to be hard. You get a lot of great stuff, sermons, songs, Bible studies, and more on that. We are also continuing to have our Bridge Live video service every Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. Central Time over at facebook.com slash thebridgechicago. We are continuing to have a lot of fun, have some great speakers. We recently had our first ever, ever double deacon bridge night. Our deacons, Ooh. Jeff and Hector, doing an amazing job. We got a lot of awesome people involved. We do hope you will join us. We're having a lot of fun in the chat, hanging out. And, of course, if you can't catch it live, you can always catch every episode is archived at the videos tab at facebook.com slash thebridgechicago. All right, we're going to move to our first question here. If you hang this all the way to the end, I'll give you some ways you can touch this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and click the links there. Our mm. first question comes in and says, Any word of advice on how to build a secure relationship with God for someone who has an avoidant attachment style? I've never had an exemplary father figure, and I tend to have trust issues. I've had something traumatic happen to me a while back and consequently door-slammed God for a long period of five years. I've since repented and come back to him, but I'd like to prevent that from happening again and learn how to trust God again. And a, a lot of really, really great stuff going on in this question. A lot of really cool angles I think we can come with this at. And Lee, where would we start off? Yeah, I I really love this question. I'm, I'm so glad that you trusted us with this. Um, and And I'm sorry for the things that you've been through. And you know that's a really easy thing to say but but please know that that when we say stuff like that on this show we mean it we're we're sorry for the things that you've been through we it would be our honor to pray for you um after all the 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 trouble and the pain that you've been through i would suggest based on one thing that you were saying in your question i would suggest that you might have less repenting to do and more just talking to do with god um 
because of the things that you've been through, one of your greatest instincts is is going to be basically to keep everybody at arm's length because of the fact that that people who uh, who you trusted, who should have accepted you, who should have uh, rewarded your trust with 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 warmth and compassion and kindness and acceptance and all that kind of stuff, they they squandered that um, and and they didn't they didn't treat you well. Uh, because of that pain, you're going to have an instinct to keep people at arm's length. And by the way, that's going to include God. Now, here's the cool thing about this: God completely understands that instinct. He he understands that 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 your natural instinct is going to pe- be to keep people at arm's length. I think our there, there's something in this that feels like, man, if I, you know, if I keep God at arm's length, then he's going to be mad at me. That I'm going to be in trouble or something like that. And one of my favorite things about the good news of Jesus is that I can say with 100% confidence, because of the gospel, the good news, you are not in trouble. It's, it's maybe my favorite kind of wholesale statement about the good news of what Jesus has done is like, the things that, that we feel like, oh man, if I, if I react in this way, then, then God is going to be disappointed. If I react in this way, I'm going to be in trouble with the Lord in some way. Here's the good news of, of Jesus. You are not in trouble. And he understands the, the kind of reactive instincts that you have based on the pain that you've experienced. What, what counselors would say in your particular situation is that what you're looking for from the relationships in your life is what's called earned security. Um, you're looking for people in your life who will do the work to earn your trust, who little by little will prove to you in small ways leading to big ways, you can trust me with, with, your, with, uh, with your vulnerability, with, with a relationship with you. And I'm going to, I'm going to reward that trust with showing up, with being a friend, with being consistent, with being compassionate. Um, I might start in the place of just talking with the Lord in prayer. And then I would add this piece to it, which is, I would suggest, and this is just, this is just a kind of a practical suggestion from, um, from, from kind of where, what I would do if I were in your shoes is I would go to one of the Gospels in, in the Scriptures. And, and I might start with the Gospel of Mark, just because it's the shortest one, it's, uh, it's the most action-packed one, it's the easiest one to read, it's kind of the funnest one to read. And I would go to the Gospel of Mark, and I would go into that book with a question, which is this. What does Jesus do in relationships with people? How does he treat them? If people take a chance on a relationship with Jesus, how does he respond? Does he hold people at arm's length or does he, is he warm and inviting? Does he give people a chance or does he not show up for them? And kind of use yourself as a proxy for some of the people that Jesus hangs out with in the gospel of Mark. And during that process, talk to him about this. Um, just tell him how you feel. Lord, I'm afraid to open myself up to you because People that should have accepted me and should have been kind to me uh, didn't show up, and they weren't consistent, or they hurt me, or I have traumatic issues and stuff like that. What I would say is, go go into a situation like that. Go into the Gospel of Mark, for instance, and insist that Jesus demonstrate 
that he's worthy of your trust. We're looking for earned security. What will Jesus do if you make yourself open to him? How does he treat people in relationships? The the good news for you today is you are not in trouble. You don't you you have not done this poorly in any way. And the Lord is willing to have the conversation with you and he understands your instinct for holding people at arm's length. You have not done this poorly. You have been treated poorly. And he gets that and he's ready to start building bridges with you and start earning your trust. That is an excellent excellent place to start that off. And Glenn, where would where would we take this from there? I think that stuff about the trust is very important, but maybe that starts with, as Lee's kind of pointing us to here, you have to uh, acknowledge and understand that you had uh, some experiences and that, as we would put it in Chicago, your issues you come by honestly. What part does that right. play in this? Well, yeah, if you, uh, you know, if you look at the actual definition of avoidant attachment style it's a, it's a term from child psychology and it just means when you have a parent that um either can't or does not want to care for your emotional well-being so when you have emotions as a child the parent communicates to you it's not convenient for me for you to have emotions mm-hmm. so just have fewer emotions Therefore, you have less attachment to that person. Therefore, you don't have bonds of trust because when you have a crisis or a problem, there isn't someone that you can turn to. And it makes sense that in a, in a certain sort of way that God would end up catching some of that heat as well. That, In other words, if that's how you deal with, with the whole world, it's going to be how you deal with your spiritual life as well. So I think, you know, I would totally echo everything that Lee is saying here and really point out that there is space between you and God for emotions. There's room. Uh, There's room to have them. There's room to vent them. Uh, That is good. That is healthy. We want to move on from that. We don't want to wallow in it, that's for sure. But we don't want to judge that process. We want to be able to just be completely honest. There's Plenty of scriptural examples of that that we can use to back all this up. Uh, but it's important to recognize God is not telling you to have fewer emotions. Amen. Uh, again, we don't want to be ruled by our emotions. That's a different thing. And it's a very important thing to draw those distinctions. Uh, it, you know, it, it, there's a difference between being an emotionless robot <laughs> uh, who's trying to be programmed to be a, a Christian or something and someone who has real feelings, expresses them, works through their anger and fear and doubt and distrust and all of that, and comes to some kind of a real, authentic, healthy relationship at the end of that process. Second thing I really want to zoom in on here is you you said you, uh, you had something traumatic happen a while back, and you door slammed God for a period of five years, uh, but then you said, I've re- since repented and come back to him. And I'd really like to know what you mean by repent there. If you mean it in sort of the biblical sense of you know, a change of mind there, you know, to, you know, for the literal definition of the word for repent. Um, or was it a thing where you, you know, had to go to God and say, I was not engaged with you and this was 
this was because I was a bad person, and so I have to repent of being a bad person. Uh, I don't think that I let's unrepent that because I don't I don't think that fits. Uh, if you that is different from saying, you know, Lord, I I shut you out when I needed you most. Uh, that's different from saying I sort of projected all of this anger onto you because I didn't have anybody else. Those are things that make sense to me. So why wouldn't they make sense to God? He He's more understanding than I am. He gets it better than I get it. Uh, I think he understands the fact and he must understand this because it happens a whole lot, but God must understand the fact that so often in our emotional lives, we don't have anyone we can blame for things. Mm. So it just becomes God by default, sort of. And um, that's a regular feature of my relationship with God and everyone else's. God has an understanding about that. Again, we don't want to be stuck in that. We want to work through that. But you work through it by going to the Lord in prayer saying, what the heck is this, Lord? This is not okay. And that's where the healing begins, is when we have that authentic conversation. Final thought here. You're talking about trying to get to a place of trusting the Lord, and here's the problem that I have with trusting the Lord, is um, God has no interest in fulfilling my image of what a God is. <laughs> uh, and uh, a lot of that is because it, it's sort of selfish, you know, like my idea of God is like, he smites all my en- enemies and that's really cool. And he thinks I'm really smart and really cool. And he hooks me up and, you know, I, I have my own idea of what God should be. I mean, I can't trust God to fulfill that because uh, that's not, that's not who he is and that's not what his mission is. Um, I I can only trust that he will be the things that he says that he's going to be. I can only uh, trust that as I get to know him for who he is, that I can see how consistent he is with that, and that's where that trust is going to come from. But I have to grow to a point where I understand what I actually can trust about God. Mm, amen. Um, excellent, excellent place to take that. And Jed, where would we close this off? Well, we are so glad that you wrote in, and we are praying for you, and we're standing with you, and I totally agree with the great stuff that these fellows have already given you. If I could add anything, I'd like to encourage you to to have a bit of a thought experiment as it pertains to your prayer life. And here's the thought experiment is I want you to try and imagine what is the most honest prayer life that you can imagine having. I'm not asking you to have it. I'm just saying I want you to try and and imagine in your head, like, what would be the most honest, like the maximum strength, honest prayer life? What what would it be like? What, you know, as as many details of it um, as, as you can think of. And then the next question is, the parts that you don't have today, why not? Is that we're afraid of being honest with God? Is that I just don't feel comfortable telling God certain things? Is that people told me there was a certain way I had to pray, and uh, so I just I feel like I you know need to follow that? But I want you to just, again. The, the experiment is simple. Think about what would be like in as much detail as you can. Just the maximum strength, honest prayer life, the most honest you can imagine. And then, to the extent that you don't have that, 
Why not? What are the things that are standing in the way of that? that that's the thought experiment. And the thing I want to encourage you to try is with that in mind, I want you to add one thing into your prayer life. I want, I want you to make an agreement between yourself and God that you are allowed to declare that you must be wrong and then say how you feel. Let me explain what I mean. I want you to develop a relationship with God in a prayer life where you can say to him, I am sure I'm missing something. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I must be wrong. I'm sure yeah. that I'm way off in left field. Oh, Lord. However, the following is how I feel about the situation that I am dealing with, whatever that situation is. I want to challenge you to take a leap of faith and try having that kind of prayer life. Because uh, there's a few things about this. The first is all of the um, nefarious thoughts that you're afraid to share with God, he already knows that you have them. So there's, there's no hiding anything from God. Um, the second is there are nonstop examples in Scripture of godly people who were brutally honest with God in their prayer life. Um, but thing three is, I think if you want to develop trust with God, you kind of have to take a chance. And there is no chance more important than the vulnerability to be open and honest. There's always a limit with other human beings because even people that, that we you know, know super well, we could say the wrong thing the wrong way and it could kind of weird them out. But God gets it. In all things, at all times, all situations, God gets what you're up against. He gets what you're dealing with. He gets how you feel better than you do. There, there's actually no chance of just weirding God out and then he doesn't want to hear from you anymore. Mm. So the only real risk is, are you just willing to be vulnerable with God? Are you, are you willing to, to let it all out? And I really want to encourage you to take a big step in that direction. Again, I think it may help your comfort level if you have the preface of, hey, I know I must be wrong. I'm sure I must be missing things. I'm sure stuff I'm not seeing, but here's how I'm feeling about my situation. But I think what's going to happen on the other side of getting in the habit of, of really telling the Lord how you're feeling and, and, and what you're dealing with is, A, you will not be a greasy spot on the ground, which I think is part of what you're afraid of, is that you, mm-hmm. you would share your feelings and God would be so offended that a lightning bolt would just, you know, uh, uh, turn you to mm-hmm. ash. But the second thing is, I think that you might find a promise of the Bible coming true. So a lot of folks are, are aware of a, a verse that says, cast your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you, which is a great verse and it's a beautiful promise. But there's actually a mirror verse in the Old Testament that starts out the same way, but it says something different. It says, cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. Mm. And I really want you to get that sustenance from the Lord. I really want you to get that strength from the Lord. But to get it, you got to cast the cares, man. To get that strength, we've got to take a step into that vulnerability. We've got to unburden ourselves so that God can carry those burdens and sustain us. And that's, I think, as you, as you walk deeper into that, I think you're going to see quite a bit of trust and quite a bit of reliance develop. And I think you're going to like what you see happen there. But again, I think the start of that journey is choosing vulnerability and giving yourself permission to be more honest than you thought you could be with the Lord. I think that is all fantastic stuff from all these guys. One small thing I will, I will tack on the end here. 
I, I really love that you clearly have done some work on this. As you know, as Glenn was pointing out, uh, avoidant attachment is a, a term from psychology that is uh, that is very good. We always uh, encourage people to seek uh, professional help when they can. It really helps the understanding. And if you but if you've gotten that through some kind of amateur looking around and. There's a thing about that kind of stuff and kind of the Myers-Briggs stuff and the Enneagram stuff, which can be very cool in this way in that it can tell you something about yourself that lets you know where some vulnerabilities are and where some work needs to go. What it doesn't do is define your limitations. It is not true to say, well, I have these traumatic events. I had the way I grew up. I'm avoiding attachment. Therefore, there's only so far I can go with trust and intimacy and that kind of stuff. That is not true of you. We don't believe that. We don't think God thinks about that about you. And that is, this is not a defining thing. This is a challenge and there's a way you need to overcome your particular challenges. And these guys gave you a lot of awesome, awesome stuff on that. We're going to move on to our next question. Comes into our email address and says, what is discipleship? Working in the church and being around many youth groups, this word has been thrown around so often that now I'm starting to wonder if anybody actually knows what this word means. I even start to wonder what and how is discipleship supposed to be in a biblical context and not in the, oh, do we just need to do a program kind of context? I've seen churches and groups doing discipleship programs to the point I feel like it's redundant and a glorified elite group of Christians in the church or a way to earn brownie points with leaders. So I'd like to know what's your take on discipleship and how to actually disciple another person. And, an, and again, another excellent, excellent question. And uh, by, uh, Glenn is a person who, in this call who's done by far the most discipleship. Where, where would you start with explaining that concept to somebody? Well, I first of all, I appreciate uh, the question because you're not the only one asking it. There's, I actually get this a whole lot. That uh, discipleship has just become such a buzzword without anything real attached to it that just has lost its meaning. Uh, when I specifically when I speak to seminary students, they say, "Don't if you're gonna if you're gonna talk to us as a group, don't use that word. We'll all tune you out. We've just heard it too much, and none of us knows what the heck these people are talking about." So. Mm. Here's the actual definition of discipleship, and we'll talk about why it's a mystery uh, on the other side of it. Discipleship is uh, based on the, uh, the 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 Great Commission. This is the last thing that Jesus said. Uh, it, we were just talking about the book of Mark. Mark 16, uh, 15 says, Go into all the world and, the pre- and preach the gospel to uh, uh, all creation. Uh, as the New International has it, and other places say all nations and so forth. So it's it's the the world there. Okay, so you go out, which is where we start this process. That's we leave the building that you are in into the world where those people um, are either uh, not saved in any way. They might be in a different religious group, or they might be sort of questioning. They may have been in church at some point and kind of decided they don't want to go anymore. So they're unchurched, if we want to use that language uh, to describe those people. But there are people out in the world. We go to those people. We share the gospel with them in any way that seems appropriate to them and to the situation, and that is welcome uh, for them. 
and uh, through the process of earning their respect and having that conversation and exploring mm-hmm. those things, they choose to then uh, become a follower of Christ. And then at some point, you continue to raise them up in the faith to where they can do the exact thing that you did with them. All right. And then they can go out into the world and talk to other people. That's what a disciple is. That's what disciple making is. That's what the verse is talking about. That's what we mean when we say discipleship. Um, what your church or your seminary or anybody else means by discipleship uh, is almost certainly not that. They are, they're, they're not looking at that particular actual biblical definition. Here's why. In order to grow a church, ministry, a youth organization, any of those kind of things, there's two ways to do it, uh, and it's either addition or multiplication. Addition is you just add additional people to this uh, ministry, put up a sign in the quad or whatever. There's all kinds of different ways to do that. Nothing wrong with that, um, but you're bringing people in that you haven't talked to. You mm-hmm. haven't gone out and dealt with them. They just came in on their own. They they went and got themselves and brought themselves in. Um, and it actually takes a lot of work and a lot of money and a lot of effort to grow by addition in that way. Uh, those people come in not knowing you, not respecting you. You haven't earned the right to be heard with them. They're just there because they got you know no other idea how to do this. And... Um, it's kind of tough to grow from there. It's, it's not impossible, and it's not like there's something hugely sinful about it, but it's also not what Mark sixteen fifteen is talking about. The other way to grow is by multiplication, which is the method we were just talking about here. You're multiplying yourself by going out and reaching someone who can then go, turn around and do what you've done with them. So if you look at our—we uh, were just uh, mentioning earlier about our, our Tuesday night services. We have Two of our deacons, these are men who've come up through our program. Uh, they've been trained by our staff uh, member, Pete Lawson. Uh, they were able to bring the word as effectively as a lot of pastors thought. Amen. That's <laughs> right. Uh, they do our announcements. They do, uh, we, we go to residential drug rehab programs and do small group stuff. It's socially distanced and all of that. We do, do it safely. But they're leading small group discussions there, uh, and that's going to be the future of what the bridge will look like once we come off of a lockdown. So we have, uh, I, I, you know, we have poured into Pete uh, as a staff, and then Pete has poured into them, and they are literally going out and doing the work of the ministry themselves. We're just helping to organize that, lead them, train them, and so forth. That's what discipleship is. Is discipleship is awesome. It's amazing. It's fun, and when you do it, it's it's such a builds a stronger organization. It takes longer to do, but when you do it, you're literally multiplying yourself. Long term, you grow much faster that way than trying to add one person at a time. An excellent, excellent place to start this off. And Jed, let me get you pick us up there because I think as our friend of the question says. One of the misconceptions about discipleship, and actually I think Glenn points to it uh, with his story about speaking to, to seminary students and the idea of just, please, for the love of all is holy, don't say that word again. I think a little bit of that is it, it goes right up there with um, uh, sports coaches saying we're going to be uh, a lot tougher this year and yeah. you know uh, exercise programs that talk about in- intensity and muscle confusion. Right. In that it's a great buzzword that doesn't have to mean anything. 
and kind of his code for like is going to be real awesome. Oh yeah. So get more awesome. But there is a a function to discipleship. There's a way that works. So again, to take Glenn's other very good example, when uh, for example, our friend Pete sits down with our deacons or when Lisa sits down with the young person, we sit down with someone, we're doing something in that time we're spending together and it's not giving them the secret sauce to be the awesomest Christian. So what is it actually? That's a great question, man. We can we can dig directly into that. And the way that we're going to do it is we're going to start by looking at some non-religious, non-spiritual examples, because I think it's going to help a lot to clear up the confusion. If you wanted to learn about art, there are two broad avenues you could go down. They're both cool. They're both very neat, but they are very different. One is you could go to your local community college and you could take an art appreciation class. And you would learn a little bit of art history, and you'd learn about a certain number of painters, you'd learn about schools of art, you know, impressionism and whatnot, and you'd learn what to look for when you go to the museum and you see a painting in order to make an interesting observation. And people say, oh, this fellow knows his art, which is great. I want to be clear. Learning to appreciate a thing is super cool. That's a, it's a good thing. And if you've never taken a, you know, a class to appreciate something, I think you should actually, whether it's a class or a book or a YouTube video, learning to appreciate something you don't know how to appreciate is great. I, I think we should all do that. But that's very, very different from taking lessons in how you paint. Think about that for a second. On the one hand, you have learning about painting generally. And art generally, which is cool. It's good stuff. On the other hand, you have, you have a brush in your hand and there's paint on those bristles and you're putting it on canvas and you're trying to make something that looks like something. These are two completely different things. It's not that one is bad and one is good. It's not that one is for losers and one is hardcore. They're just very, very different things. And again, when we're looking at non-religious stuff, we all know that. We all get that. We, we are aware that there's a huge difference between taking a music appreciation class and studying how to play the trombone. These are not the same thing. They are, one is not necessarily better than the other, but they are very, very different. When we look at spiritual stuff, part of the confusion is coming from the fact that when we say discipleship, different people mean very different things. And some of them basically mean Jesus appreciation class. You're going to learn, I want you to learn all the things that are neat about church and the Bible and Jesus and historical Christianity. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But as Glenn is pointing out, that's not really discipleship. That could be good background information for you to have. Um, you know, there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But discipleship is focused on you learning, in a sense, a skill. There's a thing that you're going to learn to do that you didn't know before. Other stuff is about just learning facts you didn't know before. But discipleship is learning to do a thing that you didn't know before. Okay. If that's clear, then we can then look at what actually goes on in discipleship, because it's the same in kind of non-religious stuff as it is in um, uh, our journey of faith. Most of coaching or discipleship, which are essentially the same thing, is A, about helping people move past obstacles, and B, it's about helping people let go of nonsense. Mm. And it kind of has to be done on an individual level because – People have individual obstacles they're facing and individual nonsense that they are hung up on. That's just how this works. Gosh, Jed, I, it sounds like what you're talking about would take a lot of time and a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention. 
I it, it would definitely do that. It would well, and and again, I think this is the funny thing is if you looked at non-religious stuff, we all get that. Learning to play the piano in a group setting would be very hard to pull off. It it <laughs> right. only really works if there's you and the piano teacher and you're getting together and you're playing the scale and they're like, hey, bro, if you play it that way, you'll never be able to play it fast. You need to put your fingers differently. Hold them more like this. That will give you speed and power. Okay, This person is discipling you as a piano player at this right. point. They're pointing out the things that are hanging you up. They're pointing out the stuff that you, the obstacles that are in your way. This is how we actually move forward. The reason why there is so little discipleship in the world is first, um, the, the skill and the craft and the technique of telling people who don't know Jesus about Jesus in an effective way is actually not something a lot of people know about. Um, and then passing that along is not something that a lot of people know about. So there aren't a lot of people running around who um, who are doing that because there's actually not a ton of people who who are terribly good at that. But the second thing is the vast majority of people who are talking to you about discipleship have not been discipled. Hello. They wow. they took a music appreciation class and someone told them, "I just taught you music." They took an art appreciation class and someone said, "I just taught you to paint." And because that's what's going on for them and everybody they know, they've never questioned that. And again, it's not to knock the appreciation class element of it. It's good to appreciate things. It's good to know Bible facts. But these are two very, very different things. And you kind of need somebody who knows how to do the thing who can then tutor and coach and instruct you on how to do the thing better in your own life. Uh, Entirely right there. Um two things. One, I actually played trombone in middle school band, as Jed mentioned there. I never rose above third chair technically, but I am still contesting those results. <laughs> and I hope they'll come in any one day. Also, I really love Jed's analogy there with the discipling because I love the idea of the equivalent of with uh, a lot of Christian people going to someone saying, hey, you know about art. Can you paint me a picture? And then being like, here is a uh, some quotes from a picture that Tim Keller painted. <laughs> nice. uh, I've strung them together in a new way. It takes forty five minutes. So a lot, a lot of awesome, awesome stuff <laughs> in there. And Lee, you bring up the the point of the one on one time, and that could be purely one on one. That could be one on one in small groups. It's there's a ton of ways to do it, but that is a pretty critical element that cannot be skipped over here, right? That's it. Um, the the word disciple means student. That's what the literal, when we see the word disciple in the New Testament, it's a word that means student. And it's exactly what Jed's talking about. Um, everything that these guys have laid out on this is, is exactly right. I want to point out a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it's verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, mimic me as I mimic Christ. I think in the, in the NIV it says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But the literal Greek word is the word mimic. If you look it up, it's it's literally where we get the word mimic. I I, I hoisted uh, Glenn's keys to the nerdatorium, <laughs> but that's the word. It's it's we actually get the word mimic from the Greek. That's the actual word. Um, it, that's what Paul says: is you mimic me as I mimic Christ. Um, what he would do is exactly what Glenn's talking about from from his answer. He would go to a city where he didn't know anybody and none of them had ever heard of Jesus, and he would teach them the good news of Jesus, and then he would tell them how to think <laughs> about this, and then they would mimic him as he was mimicking Jesus. Like, he, basically, 
He would show them how to see the world. He would show them how to think about the the different things that they were experiencing based on what Jesus had taught him. And it was like Jesus put his DNA into Paul, and then Paul put his DNA into these people, and they were becoming more Christ-like as they were becoming more like Paul. That's the way this works. Here's the here's the nuts and bolts of this. Discipleship is based on the principle that life is an apprentice art. This is what Jed's talking about, an apprenticeship. It takes a long time. It takes one-on-one attention or small group attention. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels, he had thousands of people around him all the time. He had hundreds of people that followed him every single place he went. He sent out a group of 72 people to do a thing, but he had a crew of 12. And then within that 12, he had the super tight crew of three, and he was pouring himself into these guys. The, a, a real quick story on, on the concept of discipleship. We had a, we had a family that was coming to our church uh, a, a number of years back, and the, 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 the husband, dad, and this family had gone to a Bible school and had gotten a degree from this Bible school. And, you know, everybody at the Bible school, they were all trying to be pastors and everything. He was running a warehouse, you know, it was a good living, good job, all that kind of stuff. They've been coming to our church for a little while, I'd say half a year or something. And Matt King made one of his kind of, uh, you know, couple times a year uh, trips down to Tennessee. And typically when Matt comes down uh, into Tennessee, he will uh, preach at our church. And he's one of the missionaries we support. He's, you know, beloved member of our, of our kind of extended church family and everything. And uh, as, as is normal for Matt, when he takes the mic, he completely lit that place on fire. It was an, it was an amazing sermon. Everybody loved it. It was Glenn awesome. Glenn has spies everywhere. You have to perform. Yeah, and, that's right. <laughs> uh, this dad that I'm telling you about that went to the Bible school, and this guy pulls me aside and says, that guy that, that, that preached at church this morning, uh, w- w- where did he come from? And I was like, uh, what, what do you mean? And he's like, I mean, like, did he, did he, you know, did he go to Wheaton? Did he go to, you know, did he, <laughs> did he go to whatever, you know, he's, did he go to Dallas, you know? And I was like, nah, he went to, you know, he's from Oak Ridge High School. He went to UT. Uh, he met the Lord through an outreach ministry we have here in town that a lot of us are a part of. And uh, he, he was a part of a lot of ministries we do here at this church. And then, and then, uh, in and a then, way, he's an artisanal homemade product. Yeah, he uh and then he was drafted by uh, a ministry we support in Chicago and then uh some would use the term Shanghai. <laughs> yeah. And and then uh and and then they've been working with him ever since. We we started a work, they continued that work and and uh they they've poured into him and they've taught him and, and what you're seeing is is uh that. And he said, "So he didn't go to a he didn't go to a Bible school or anything like that?" No. Barely went to a normal school. And I tell you that whole long drawn out story to say this. Christian culture loves the anointed guy. Come on. He just came out of nowhere and he's just amazing. And we just almost worship this guy. How did he do it? How does he have the ability to do this thing? Look, 
I love Matt King as much as I love anybody in the world, but this brother was trained. Right. He was trained by people who loved him, who saw gifts in him, and then honed those gifts through beating him down and then building <laughs> right. him up. Boo. This is this Boo. is the this way is this works. Feedback. Boo. You train people. People who are good at ministry are trained. When I took my job as a full-time pastor, I thought, oh, this is going to be cool. I'm going to do some worship services with these... With these uh, at that time, I was 20, and the dudes that hired me were 45. And I thought, oh, this is cool. I'm going to hang out with these dudes who are seasoned vets, and we're going to do worship services. This is going to be so cool. I'm going to play some guitar, and people are going to come to know Jesus. And then it was every day listening to people's problems... And going to the hospital, <laughs> and then eventually going to the jail, and it was very humble stuff, man. And those guys taught me how, how you walk people through a divorce, how you walk people through a fight with their spouse, how you visit somebody who's just heard the news that they have cancer, how you pray for somebody who's given the news they have six months to live. How, do, how it, it was just literally all day long learning how to help people through their problems is very boring, very slow, some of it very tragic, very difficult, very one-on-one. Discipleship is not, let me, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. Discipleship is not sexy. It is slow. It is boring. It is difficult. It's a student thing. It's an apprentice art in the old school sense of of like a blacksmith finding somebody and teaching somebody else how to be a blacksmith. Amen. That's what it is. There is nothing else to it. It's just slow. It takes years. And guys like Jed and Matt and I can all tell you, and and then Glenn before us, it takes years. You walk with somebody. And just like Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 11, you imitate me as I imitate Christ. You mimic me as I mimic Christ. That's what discipleship is. It's slow. It's boring. It's not sexy. It's individual. It takes a long, long time. And it's and, and Christians love the sexy, anointed, uh, gifted, whatever. But it's not about that, man. It's about slowly learning a thing. That's Amen. all excellent, excellent stuff. One, one thing I'll tack on the end there, because you bring it up in your question, and a lot of times on this show for a number of reasons, and a lot of it just boils down to the type of, of dudes we are and how we want things to work. We're not huge program people. We, we would all much rather do the, we just grab a hamburger once a week and talk about where life is and we go on that. But that, that is not to say that you can't do discipleship within a program framework. Sometimes you need you need framework. We were t- talking about with with Pete. He's sitting down with our deacons, and the first thing he's doing is walking them through all the ministry training that Glenn has developed over the years. Um, you know, when I'm when I'm learning to preach from Glenn, that's we're not going to the mountaintop and you know thinking deep thoughts. It's here's the topic, here's what we're saying. Did that work? Did that not work? Yeah. We fine tune it. But the thing is, whether you're going to the coffee shop, whether you're doing uh, you know working through a workbook or whatever that may be. You need discipleship happens in that moments that 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 all these guys have described of I am going to be honest enough to point out why I don't I'm not doing that I don't understand that and then we we move that process along by answering a question talking through a feeling the kind of stuff we do on this show there there's a thousand ways to get there 
But to, to me, as these guys have been describing, that's the moment in discipleship. A lot of great, great stuff from these guys. We are going to move on to our final question, which comes in and says, My question is, does forgiveness have to come with reconciliation? I'm dealing with some childhood trauma that has revealed itself. I'm already struggling with forgiving what was inexcusable and horrific. But recently, my pastor mentioned that a church community is one that forgives and reconciles. I cannot fathom putting either of my parents back into my life. It'd be lying to them at best and or putting myself in harm's way at worst. So what do I do? Thanks. And an, an amazing question as we're talking about the, the power of, of being honest and putting yourself out there. We super, super appreciate that whenever folks are writing questions that are, that are this open. And Jed, where would we start off with this idea? Well, my friend, we love you. Uh, we are standing with you. We're sorry for, for the tough stuff. Uh, but we've got your back. We're praying for you. We're lifting you up. Uh, in terms of, of your pastor's comment, uh, my question for your pastor is, has your pastor reconciled with everyone who's ever wronged him? Okay. Because mm. he, he hasn't. Um, yeah. Uh, literally no one has done that. Uh, there's no such thing as that. And so if he could own up to that, then he would be recognizing that in life there are big picture ideals and then there are very difficult ground level realities. Yeah. Um it is it is fine for us to say that at its best and in a perfect world church would be a place that's really defined by forgiveness and reconciliation. It would be fine to say that wherever possible our goal is a community that is defined by forgiveness and reconciliation. That's fine. Uh, we all got yeah. we all got goals, man. But that's uh, that's not the same as saying you must do this or you are wrong. Um, there's a, there's a lot of daylight between those two ideas. So is um, is forgiveness and reconciliation? Is that like the best case and the A plus version? Probably, but there's also a lot of time in life, and we're about to talk about it, where that's not really a possibility. And one of the things that particularly American Christians really struggle with is. They want to hold up and exalt the ideal case. And if you say, okay, but I don't have that. So what, what else? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Just, just do the ideal case. Okay. Well then you don't have any idea what to tell me. That's, that's what we just took away from this moment. Yep. So I think in terms of, of your pastor's comment, I think it's a, a poorly executed comment that probably reveals a significant amount of cluelessness. Um, I can't prove that to be the case, but I strongly suspect it. Um, now with him out of the way, let's talk about your situation. There is a group of people who have had to think very deeply about this whole topic. And that group of people is addicts, uh, because to be an addict is to have hurt a lot of people. It's pretty hard to be an addict and not have caused some pretty major relational damage in your life. And so if you're working through really any variant of the 12 steps, you're going to get to one of the steps where it says you're going to go and you're going to make amends with the people that you've hurt, except if attempting to make amends would just cause more damage. Hmm. And we should pause and we should think about that for a second. Folks who have really made a science of how do we rebuild a life that has come pretty close to getting destroyed recognize that, yeah, uh, amends and reconciliation, those are great things, but they're not always a practical possibility. There are times in life where we just need to never, ever talk to this person ever again. Uh, that would be for sure for the best. And 
Christian's not great at acknowledging that, but but that's the truth. And of course, it's worth acknowledging that if, for example, God forbid, someone has passed away, well, then reconciliation would be an impossibility. So uh, that's just not a thing. Okay, well, this takes us back to the very first question you ask, does forgiveness have to come with reconciliation? And the answer is no. It doesn't. They're right. completely different things. Sometimes they go together, but they don't have to, and they're not the same thing. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are called to forgive other people. But that forgiveness is actually between you and God. You are right. choosing to not hold their wrongs against them between you and God. Uh, and the beautiful thing about that is you can forgive them in a Christian sense, whether they're sorry or not. Right. You can forgive them whether they acknowledge they've done anything wrong or not. Forgiveness in a Christian sense is between you and God saying, I'm not going to carry this burden around anymore. I am no longer holding this against this person, and God, I'm laying this down at your feet. That That is the, the bottom line of what Christianity from a, a forgiveness from a Christian perspective means. Here's all the things it does not mean. It does not mean that I trust this person. It does not mean that I like this person. It does not mean I want to spend time around this person. That's right. It does not mean it would be a good idea to ever see this person again. It doesn't actually imply any of those things. Some of those things may or may not be true depending on your situation, but the act of forgiving someone before God doesn't immediately directly imply any of those things. If we want to be the absolute maximum Christian we could possibly be, we'd say that there's a three-step process. Step one is naming who they are and what they did and acknowledging that a wrong has occurred and being specific about it because there really can't be forgiveness if we don't have that. So that's step one is um, uh, recognizing something bad happened. Step two is between you and God and no one else saying, I'm not going to hold this against these people anymore. And then step three, if we wanted to be the absolute maximum Christian we could possibly be, would be to say, to the extent that it makes sense, I am open to the possibility of a restored relationship if there is repentance. Mm. I need you to think about that for a second. I'm going to repeat the yeah. last part again. To the extent that it makes sense, I am open to the possibility of a restored relationship if there is repentance. First of all, again, in a lot of cases, there's not a practical possibility, and there may not be a moral possibility. There are certainly all manner of kinds of abuse where you just need to never see this person again. We need to never talk again. We need to never see each other again. We need to not be in the same room. If you're not sure what would make sense in your situation, uh, find a trained licensed counselor and, and go talk to them. Um, if you're not sure how to find that person, email us. We'd love to help you find that person. We can, we can help you get that squared away. But that's thing one is recognizing it may not make sense. There are plenty of cases where um, it wouldn't. In other cases where um, the situation could permit it, I am open to the possibility of restoration in this relationship. I am, I am willing to entertain it if there is repentance. This person would have to acknowledge that there had been wrong done and express sorrow for it and a desire to change in the future for there to be any chance of a restored relationship. And unless and until we reach that point, there is, uh, that's, that's not going to happen because those are the constituent ingredients needed to begin that process of restoration. Again, that's the maximum strength most Christian we could possibly ask anyone to be is I'm naming their crime. 
Between me and God, I am forgiving them of their crime. And if it makes sense, I am open to the idea of restoration should there be repentance on their Mm. part. What is interesting is your pastor didn't say any of that. What he just said is, oh, you got to forgive and forget. That is not what we are saying. Um, We are sorry for the wounds that you've experienced. We do want to urge you to forgiveness, but we want that for the sake of you, not for the sake of them. Because right. um, we don't want you to have to carry around those burdens anymore. Uh, there are plenty of situations where it does not make any sense to see these people ever again. And the one thing we don't need to add onto your plate, because you're doing the hard work of working through the stuff, the one thing we don't need to add onto your plate is any false guilt, because you don't have anything to feel guilty about. Absolutely right. That is a beautifully put way to, to start that off. And Leah, let me get you to pick us up here because I think one of the things that is important going on here is, um, as as Jed did a great job pointing out there, forgiveness and reconciliation are different things. Right. And here's here's what I'd love to get you to dig into. Um, reconciliation is not like the final boss of forgiveness you have to defeat. And if you don't do that, you kind of did a C-plus forgiveness job, and it right. wasn't as good as it could be, which is certainly a thing you hear you know, said in a lot of contexts. Let's look at them as different things. What, what is forgiveness? What is reconciliation? And what does forgiveness without reconciliation look like, and how is that still a good thing? That's a really good way to state that. I, I loved everything that Jed said on that, and, and you know— I, and it's definitely worth repeating to say that we we love you. We're praying for you. We're sorry for the the pain that you've experienced, and we have your back on that. Um, one of the things that I've experienced that I think happens often in the Christian kind of world is that it's easy for people to weaponize the idea of the necessity of forgiveness. And it's important, like, I love the way that Matt framed this question, because it's important that we're all using the right terminology. I think Jed and Matt are exactly right that people lump forgiveness and reconciliation into one term. They are different things. And what Christians will often say, and I have absolutely heard this um, in, in, uh, just in, in my work as a pastor, like, watching and and helping people kind of work through differences and, and problems and marriages and stuff like that. I, you know, I've heard, I've heard multiple people say to their spouse or to somebody they're in a disagreement with, look, if you are calling yourself a Christian, you have to forgive me. <laughs> and here's the deal. We, we have to be clear about the terminology because here's what they actually mean by that. What they mean by that is if you love Jesus then you have to give me carte blanche to be a complete and total punk to you for the rest of your life. That's what they mean by that. Yep. You have to give me a blank check to act however I want, and you have to be fine with it. That's what they mean by forgiveness. Those are, yeah. That's not what forgiveness means. That's not what Christian forgiveness means. And by the way, we should point out that Jesus Christ himself said, If anyone harms one of these little ones, it would be better for them if a millstone was tied around their neck and they were thrown into the bottom of the sea. So here's one thing that we all, all four of us, want to say to you, someone who has experienced trauma as a child, um, Jesus is on your side in this, and he may be madder than you are about it. And that's an important, important thing. When you have 
when you have uh, somebody who has been abusive or traumatic or whatever, Jesus himself is not necessarily saying to you, I want you to reconcile with these people. I want you to hang out with them. I want you to be with them. He might be fitting somebody for a millstone. And those were his words. I didn't make that up. So uh, let's just be very, very, very clear about that. Um, forgiveness, exactly as Jed's saying, this is about you unburdening yourself. I'm going to be real honest right here for a second. What happens to me when somebody hurts me is I want to hurt them back. That's what I feel. I, I don't know if everybody feels that way about it, but that's the thing I feel is I want you, to hurt you back if you you're the only me. one, Lee. I don't yeah, feel certainly that way not at me, all. and certainly not Glenn. No. And, and here's the thing is there like once my mind starts going down that track, it takes a lot of energy for me to develop the plans in which I would like to hurt you back. In which uh you know, just really elaborate ways of dealing out the punishment that you so justly deserve if you have injured me or somebody that I love. And what that forgiveness piece means from my part is I'm going to the Lord and I'm saying, in, in obedience to scripture, by the way, Lord, it's your right to avenge. You're more angry about this than I am. So I am going to lay this at your feet and to, to use Jed's phrase, I'm going to, um, I'm going to say, I am not going to get this person back. I'm going to unburden myself from the weight and the just the the mental bandwidth and the emotional strain of thinking about how all of the lovely ways that I would like to get this person back. And I'm going to hand that over to you and say, it's your right to avenge, because that's what the scripture says. And I want by your spirit for you to set me free from the need to get them back. That may be a process that you have to repeat several times to get it right. To, to kind of unload the emotion of that. But to be clear, the forgiveness between me and the Lord, that conversation between me and the Lord is usually me saying to him, I am, I am uh, relinquishing my right to kick them in the shins the next time I physically see them. Now, Lord, if you would like to aim a swift kick at their shins, then... uh. Holy is your name. Thy will be done. Right. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But look, I, I am not going to do that. I'm going to let you deal out justice, and I'm going to set myself free from just honestly uh, the emotional strain and the mental bandwidth of finding out all of the delicious ways that I would like to get this person back. That's a totally different animal than reconciliation. And Jed's exactly right. In so many cases, especially where abuse is involved, there is no person who is licensed that, that is professional. And we should be very clear, again, Jesus himself would not want you to reconcile with that person. Um, that is a thing where you are unburdening yourself from the just the emotional strain and the mental bandwidth of how you're going to get that person back. And you're handing that to the Lord to set yourself free from it. But that doesn't mean that you're going to be in a relationship with them. All excellent, excellent stuff there. Glenn, I'd love to get you to close this out here. I think um, 
you have a great uh, phrase for for uh, it's for situations like this one. And I think it really clearly draws the distinction between the two things we're talking about here. And I'd love to get you to apply it to what we're talking about here, and that is the idea that forgiveness is given and trust is earned. And that I think that really speaks to the heart of what we're looking at with there's something here when forgiveness is talking about that you give away when you decide to, and reconciliation has a whole different dynamic to it, right? Absolutely. Um, the part I want to make sure we are all on the same page on here is who has the responsibility to do the reconciling? That would yep. be the person who caused the problem in the first place. Okay. What? Why am I in charge of reconciling this broken relationship with the person who did the breaking? How? How, how does that? You know. And, and the, these fellows are pointing out the obvious problem with all this, the unworkable problem with all this, is. You know, if you took the stapler off your pastor's desk and you hit him upside the head with it and said, okay, now you have to forgive me. It's in the Bible. I Bibled you. Now you have to forgive me. He would say, well, you, yeah, but you're not repenting. And you'd say, well, I that didn't come up in this discussion previously, but I agree with you. I'm sorry for hitting you up the side of the head with this stapler. And then you hit him again and say, I'm sorry, again, for hitting you again upside the head. He would say, well, you don't really mean it because you're just doing that, saying that reflexively. <laughs> and you'd say, oh, I didn't know that I had to apply you know, discernment to figure out when this is real and when it's not and uh, you know, get some understanding of you know where we are in the process of reconciling this, and then I. What if I said, okay, after hitting you upside the head with a stapler, okay, now you have to fix what has gone wrong here with me. Like you have to talk me into wanting to have a relationship with you after I hit you with a stapler. You know, he would say this is this is insane, but it, it this is. You know, these are sort of pat answers that people give when they don't understand how the, you know, how life works, let alone how a a life of faith works. But I do want us to also look at, just before we, you know, completely um, trash this not great advice here, to, to, to ask the question, does your pastor know the whole story? Uh, in other words, uh, and it's fine if he doesn't, by the way, but you're saying childhood trauma, inexcusable and horrific, that's like major league there. If if he, it, you know, if you felt uh, like you didn't want to trust him with the whole story, which is, again, totally okay, and he really only knows a much smaller version of this, uh, or it's sort of vague uh, hints and so forth, then maybe he's giving this advice based on that. I'm trying to figure out a way for him not to be given some bad advice here. Uh, I, I think, you know, generally speaking, as these fellows are pointing out, forgiveness is, is great stuff, but that's at the end of a long process. And if you tell me, step one, forgive, you're just telling me you don't understand how to walk the Christian walk. If you're saying it's, you know, that if you're acknowledging that it's a process, then you need to be talking to me about step one in the process, not the final step in the process. Uh, you could say forgiveness is the goal, but here are the steps. Um, 
But let me ask you, uh, you know, this question. What good would it do for you to have these people in your life? Mm. If it wouldn't do any good for you to have this pe- these people in life, for you, why would God want it? How does that work? God wants you to have these people in your life when it would not be good for you. I, 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 maybe what your pastor is saying is it would be good for them, but if it's good for them at the cost of what's good for you, okay, then why would God want that? I can imagine how God would want you to be transformed over a very long period of time, and at some point they are repenting, and they want to reconcile with you, which is how this actually goes. Uh, if if pastor's going to preach a message of reconciliation, he's not supposed to be talking to you about that. He's supposed to be talking to them about it. But if that becomes a situation where it would be a, an incredibly tough challenge for you but in the long run, it might be good for you, and it might be good for them. It might be good for the kingdom and the church and for this pastor who doesn't know what he's talking about. That's something we can look at. But right now, in this moment, what good would it do for you to have these people in your life? If you can't think of anything on that, then I can't think of any reason why God would want it to happen. So, uh, let's just apply some of that very basic life uh, advice here. God, God wants a, a, a full and rich and healthy life for you, full of healthy, encouraging relationships. He puts us in challenging situations all the time, but that's to accomplish a purpose. Relationships, all the relationships you have in your life are meant to have a purpose, and it's meant to serve a godly purpose. Uh, if this relationship can't and isn't serving a godly purpose, then it would not be a righteous relationship for you to have. In other words, the same pastor would say, don't spend a lot of time around unsaved people. That could be a negative influence. Well, if these people are going to be a negative influence on you, how is that any different? Uh, We have to look at long-term. God has a purpose for relationships. He has a purpose for your life. And we need to know what that purpose is, and then we're going to figure out who belongs in that inner circle of your life and who belongs on the back burner and who just simply does not fit into the picture at this point in time. Wonderful stuff there. I think that's a great way to cap this discussion off. I will, at the very end here, just put some bones on something, great stuff that all of these guys said. And it's a little Bible nerd fact, if you need some some Bible stuff to back up what they're saying here. So if you look just at the book of Matthew, the word that's translated forgive gets used over two dozen times. Like if you think of Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debtors, we forgive you know those who are indebted to us. It's a word that means literally to send away or let go. Like you may think of when the when Jesus calls a fisherman, it says, they left their nets there. That's the same word. To let go of something and leave it where it is. So the word that probably came up in the sermon about reconcile is used exactly one time in the entire, in the Gospels, in the book of Matthew. Mm-hmm. And yep. as Glenn points out correctly, it says, if you're giving your offering at the altar and someone has something against you, yes. not the other way around, uh-huh. leave your offering there and go be reconciled to them. The little definition of that means change what is happening between the two of you. Mm, right. So 
And again, if you want to some some infer some things from this, there's the very clear that that is the onus on the person who did the harming, as Glenn pointed out. And if you want to know which one of those is probably a lot more likely to come up, there's about a 26 to 1 ratio of how much <laughs> each word is used in the New Testament, which is now I know we're being pretty anti-math this week, but that's just a little <laughs> math to close you out. If you have a question for us, you can email say that podcast at gmail.com or go to thebridgechicago.tumblr.com slash ask if you want to keep that completely anonymous. Missionusa.com slash bridgebox and of course Facebook.com slash the bridge Chicago, where you can join us every Tuesday at 7 30 p.m. Central Time for our Bridge Live cast. We're gonna tell you the song this week. This is from our great friend out of Sri Lanka, Ashen Sandaru. A really awesome song called All of Us Cannot Fail. Take out that. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. The Say That Podcast reminding you to cast your ballot in the intergalactic podcast runoff elections. Make Say That great for once. <laughs> <laughs>